new series that we are calling Heroes of the Faith. Each week, our goal is to pick a well-known Old Testament character and preach on the most well-known moment in their story. We're talking about that high point where they really shine for us as a hero of the faith. We want to commend to you their brave choices and their heroic actions. We, we want to imitate that. But more so, our bigger goal in the end is to demonstrate how all of these heroes merely foreshadow a greater hero to come. We don't want you to just imitate these biblical characters, um, not just imitating their actions. We want you to ultimately imitate their faith, to share in their hope of, the, of divine deliverance through God's chosen deliverer. Now, last week, we began with Abraham and his willingness to, to sacrifice his beloved son on the altar. This week, we're going to move on to Moses and the Exodus story. Now, of course, there's just so much that we could talk about when it comes to the Exodus. So what we're going to do is to zero in on this famous parting of the waters, this crossing of the Red Sea that's found in Exodus 14. It's such a well-known story to so many of us that I think it's easy for us to, to lose sight of the, the, the miracle here. That, 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 that it's easy for this miraculous event to lose its intended impact. So I think it's going to benefit us to try to start off by, by looking at this crossing of the Red Sea from the perspective of the original ancient audience. You see, in our modern era of bridges and tunnels and ferries, it's difficult to grasp the significance of a water crossing for those who are living in biblical times. I mean, just think about how there is not a single mention of a bridge in all of the pages of Scripture. So in those days, a, to cross a body of water was no simple feat. Bodies of water really functioned as natural barriers that divided peoples. The borders of kingdoms and empires were defined by rivers and seas and other bodies of water. Even within biblical cosmology, waters divide. Just think of Genesis chapter 1, and how it tells us that the heavens were made by separating the waters from the waters. And so the, the, the waters that were above were separated from the waters below. And so in order to ascend to or to descend from heaven, that meant passing through waters. Waters even figuratively divided one era from the next. So Noah passed through the flood waters into a new world. Joshua crossed the river Jordan into a new promised land. John baptized people in water into a new kingdom. And so here in our text, when the Israelites crossed the Red Sea, friends, that event was understood as the beginning of a new epoch in redemptive history. And it really established a pattern of divine deliverance that we see repeated throughout the pages of Scripture. The crossing of the Red Sea became what is known as a paradigm for biblical salvation. All the categories that we need in order to grasp the idea of salvation were established right here in this one inaugural event. From this moment on, Throughout the rest of Scripture, God is going to continually deliver an undeserving people by the might of His strong hand. He will continually fight for a people who constantly are fighting against Him. 
He will continually save a people who are simply too lost to save himself. You see this pattern over and over again, and it starts right here at the Red Sea. If you want to know how salvation works, friends, if you want to know how you can be delivered from a life of futility and enslavement, a life under wrath, a life destined for condemnation, then this story of the Israelites crossing the Red Sea must really become more than a story to you. It must become the very paradigm by which you approach God to receive his promised deliverance through his chosen deliverer. So to help you to grasp this paradigm, to make it your own, I want to highlight four observations from our passage. You want to follow along? There's an outline in your bulletin. We're going to look at four observations regarding divine deliverance. First, we're going to see how divine, divine deliverance, one, dismays, two, how it humbles, three, how it initiates, and fourth, we'll see how divine deliverance anticipates. So that's where we're going. Come along with me into this text. The first observation we want to see is that divine deliverance dismays by first leading you down a difficult path, by leading you down a difficult path. In other words, we can't assume that just because God is committed to saving his people, we can't assume that he wouldn't want us or allow us to experience any difficulty in life. God is not like an anxious parent who can't bear to see his children suffer, who just will immediately swoop into the rescue at the slightest uh, a sign of trouble. Now, what we discover here in Scripture and within this paradigmatic event is that God will often wait before he rescues, and he will allow us to experience the trouble. In fact, he will actually be the one often who leads us into the trouble, leading us into dismay by leading us down a difficult path. That's what we see happening here in Exodus 14. Now, prior to our text, if you look with me in chapter 13, verse 17, it says that when Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them by the way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near, for God, uh, and, then, and go down to verse 18, but God led, led the people around by the way of the wilderness toward the Red Sea. So what we learn is that God didn't take the Israelites along the most obvious and, and the quickest path to the promised land. That would have been to take the ancient trade route known as the Via Maris, the way of the sea. That would have led them directly northeast from Egypt into Canaan. Instead, what we see here is that the Lord led his people by the way of the wilderness towards the Red Sea, heading southeast. So for reasons that were not apparent at the time, the Lord took them the long way. And not just a long way, but a strategically bad way. This path led them directly into the wilderness towards the Red Sea, and it was leading God's people into a death trap. No military strategist would have chosen this path. They would have ended up trapped and hemmed in by the sea. And I'm sure it didn't take long for the Israelites to realize this. Pharaoh immediately picked up on this. And the 
more important point is that God realized this. In fact, he planned this. Look at chapter 14, verse 3. This is the Lord telling Moses exactly what's going to happen. Verse 3, For Pharaoh will say of the people of Israel, They are wandering in the land. The wilderness has shut them in. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them, and I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts. So the Lord knows that Pharaoh will immediately recognize this strategic error, and out of the hardness of his heart, he's going to change his mind, and he's going to pursue them. And that's what happens in verse 5. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, the mind of Pharaoh and his servants was changed towards the people, and they said, what is this that we have done, that we have let Israel go from serving us? So he made ready his chariot and took his army with him and took 600 chosen chariots and all the other chariots of Egypt with officers over all of them. Friends, this is how divine deliverance works. It leads us to a point of dismay. Leads us to a state of helplessness. You see, if God had led by the way of the sea, had led them towards Philistine territory, then, then even if they faced resistance, well, at least facing their enemy on, on, on even ground, they could have at least put up a fair fight. But now by taking them into this path, the path of the wilderness, being shut in by the sea, the Israelites were sitting ducks. They were helpless. All they could do at this moment was to just cry out to the Lord for deliverance. And that's, that's the first step in biblical salvation. God will lead you down a difficult path that ends in dismay where you feel like you've just run out of options. You feel like, like the Israelites, like, like you just want to give up, to throw in the towel. I mean, just listen to what they say to Moses in verse 11. When they see those chariots, they see all the Egyptians coming at them. Look at verse 11. They said to Moses, Is it not because there were no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in, in lead, bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. They clearly had no confidence that God was going to come through for them. They were convinced this is the day that we're going to die. And they wished Moses had just left them alone to serve the Egyptians. Slavery is better than dying in the wilderness. That's what they were saying. And let's just be honest with ourselves. How many of us have felt a similar sense of hopelessness? You feel like God in similar manner, has led you down a very difficult path. You've tried your best to follow him. You've, you've tried to leave behind your old life with all those things that were enslaving you. You've tried to live according to his word. You, you, you were thinking, now I'm going to lead a life of victory. I'm going to lead a life of success. But instead, so far, your experience of following God has been marked by difficulties and troubles, conflicts and failures, you feel hemmed in. You feel helpless, maybe even wondering if it would have been better had you not followed God in the first place. Maybe reverting back to your old way of life, your old enslavements is better than this, what you're going through now. But don't you see, friends, don't you see that you're exactly where God 
wants you at this moment. You, like the Israelites, right now you're on the west bank of the Red Sea. Looking one way, there is a raging sea blocking your path. Looking the other way, there is a raging army coming to destroy you. Wherever you look, there's trouble. There's nowhere else to look but up, to look for help there. That's the point. Before you can experience his deliverance, you must be led to a point where you come to a place of dismay, where your only recourse is to now throw up your hands, look up to the heavens, and cry out for deliverance. That's where God wants you. And this leads us directly to our second observation. Because just as it dismays you, divine deliverance humbles you. It humbles you by asking you to stand still and to be silent. That becomes apparent in our passage. The Lord delivers in such a way as to humble you by especially reminding you that your salvation is unmerited by you, that not only can you not deliver yourself, there is nothing that you can do to deserve to be delivered by him. Divine deliverance is a humbling experience where you are brought to a point of helplessness and you confess your desperate need for him to do the hard work for you. Recall how the Israelites, they're paralyzed with fear. They're they're trembling on the west bank of the sea. They have no fight left in them. They assume they're going to die there in the wilderness. The Israelites are no heroes. They are not meant to be portrayed here as heroes. God's deliverance is clearly not in response to their heroic actions. He's not cooperating with a bunch of heroes to accomplish a great salvation. No, he is working in spite of these people. They've already surrendered. Only the Lord is ready to fight. Again, that's how divine deliverance works. When the Lord saves, he's going to do it all by himself. He's not asking the Israelites to join him in this battle against the Egyptians. He doesn't expect them to to gird up their loins and, and to get into the fight. No, instead he expects them to stand there and be silent, to stand still and just watch. Listen to verse 13. Verse 13, and Moses said to the people, Fear not, stand firm, and see, watch the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. When God saves, you have nothing to fear. Just stand firm. Stand still and see the salvation of the Lord, that he's going to work for you. He will fight for you. You have only to be silent. Now, this pattern is repeated over and over again in similar fashion in many of the epic battles that we find in Scripture. We're going to be looking at a few of them in our sermon series at the Battle of Jericho. The Israelites were not technically asked to stand still and be silent, but they weren't really asked to actually do the heavy lifting of engaging the enemy. We're told that they were asked to walk around the city a number of times, and then finally at the end to blow trumpets. That's all they were to do. 
or for Gideon when he met the Midianites with his 300 men. Victory was won, again, by blowing trumpets and by smashing jars in their hands. And we're told that that caused all the Midianites to turn the sword against their own comrade, and it was over, just like that. The message in each case is that victory clearly came by the strong arm of the Lord. Walls don't come down by the sound of trumpets. Armies aren't defeated by smashing jars. That doesn't happen. You could have just asked the Israelites to stand still and and just watch. The same effect is in the end. In the end, it's the Lord who fights, and you watch. Now, I I know what you might be thinking. You, You might be thinking, oh, that's... Sounds too easy. If divine deliverance is obtainable that easily, then it must not be all that valuable. Anything easily obtainable is usually considered to us as cheap, of of little worth. That's why all those participation ribbons you receive, all those participation trophies, they're probably on the bottom shelf, right? Or they're in a drawer, or more likely they're in the trash. It's of little value to you. It was so easy to get it. You just show up. Well, you can see how there's a concern here if we're dealing with divine deliverance. If it's too easily obtainable, then wouldn't that suggest that salvation is cheap? That it's of little worth? But friends, here's where I want to push back on this idea that this idea of standing still and watching is somehow an easy thing to do. I'd argue that it is extremely hard to stand still in the midst of a battle. Because everything in you, your instincts is either to flee or to fight. Standing still, standing there and just watching might very well be the hardest thing you could do. And it's also the most humbling thing you could do. To be told, you just stand still, shut up, and watch. Well, that's humbling to be told that. You get to swallow your pride there. You'll have to admit that you are unable, you are helpless. And that's not easy for prideful people to do, to admit such things. We don't enjoy having our helplessness exposed. It's especially difficult for those who are highly educated and highly accomplished, those who have made a name for themselves among their peers or within their company or in their profession, for those who highly excel in either your studies or in your career, for you to be told that you can't do anything or you can't contribute anything to your salvation, to be told you just got to stand there and just watch. Just don't talk. Be silent and watch. That sounds very condescending because that's what we tell the little children, right? We tell them, stand still. Be silent. You're treating me like a child? Oh, that's insulting. But isn't it Jesus himself? Jesus himself who said in Matthew chapter 18, verses 3 to 4, that unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. I, I, as many of you know, have a six-month-old at home. And so this imagery of 
Becoming like a little child is, is very real for me because my baby right now is utterly helpless. Like, we practically have to do everything for her. She can't feed herself. She can't change herself. She can't even sit up by herself long enough without face planting into the ground. You have to be there at every moment doing everything for her. Well, friends, let's not think more highly of ourselves. If you're not ready to become like a small child, to stand still and just be silent, then you're not ready for the kingdom of heaven. I know that's a humbling thought, but that is the way of the Lord. That's how he delivers, not by making much of you, but by exposing you, exposing your helplessness, exposing your inability to save yourself. God is going to do all the work. You have to be silent. But that, my friends, is actually the good news of Christianity. That you cannot save yourself by anything that you do. That you are saved by grace through faith and not by works so that no one can boast. I know some are going to say, well, that just makes salvation sound way too easy. Salvation by grace alone, that's just too easy. But it's not. It's not easy to stand still, to be silent, and to watch God do all the work of your salvation. You're going to have to swallow your pride. You're going to have to admit that you are a helpless babe. That's no easy thing to do. But until you do it, you cannot be saved. So friends, we've seen so far that divine deliverance dismays by leading you down a hard path And it humbles by treating you like a small child who is just watching mom and dad do everything for them. Which then relates to our third observation. That God, like that mom or like that dad, is the one who takes the initiative in our salvation. In other words, divine deliverance initiates by saving you before you learn to trust. By saving you before you learn to trust. Look with me starting in verse 19. We're told that the angel of God who had been up to this point leading Israel through the wilderness as a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. The angel of the Lord makes the first move and stands between the host of Israel and the pursuing host of Egypt. So throughout the entire night, the Lord is hindering the Egyptians from coming near to the Israelites. And throughout the entire night, look in verse 21, Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land, and the waters were divided. And the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. Now that wall of water on their right hand and on the left, if you think about it, wasn't just held up by a strong east wind. It was ultimately held up by the grace of God. This is God's grace in action. And after the Israelites made it through, we're told that the Egyptians pursued after them, going into the midst of the sea, but God frustrated their plans, clogged the wheels of their chariots, and threw them all into a panic. And then in verse 26, the Lord tells Moses to stretch out his hands over the sea again, and those walls of water were released by the justice of God overwhelming the Egyptians until not one of them remained. And then we read in verses 30 to 31, 
Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians. So the people feared the Lord. And here, finally, they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. Now take note of that order. Take note that God didn't wait for the Israelites to first have faith, to learn how to trust him before he delivered them. If he was waiting for that, then they, they would never have been saved. They would have died right there on the west bank of the sea. But God didn't wait. God took the initiative. Look at verse 31. Look at the order there. First, it's the people seeing this great deliverance, seeing the great power the Lord used against the Egyptians. They see all the dead Egyptians on the seashore. Then it says that they feared and believed. That's the way that God saves. He takes the initiative. He saves us when we cannot save ourselves. And when he opens up our eyes to see, then we trust and worship him. That, my friends, is the order. When God saves that way, what it does is that it demonstrates, it demonstrates the freedom of his sovereign grace. He's not beholden to anyone. He doesn't belong to any one nation. He gets to dispense his grace and his justice as he sees fit. That is what sets him apart as holy, as glorious among the nations. And that's the intended message that the Lord wants to send to Israel, to Egypt, and to all of us. If there were to be a consistent theme in the book of Exodus, it would be that, that God wants everyone to know and that he does all that he does so that we may know, I am the Lord. I am Yahweh. I want you to know my name. I want you to know who I am, that I am the God of all creation. I am the great deliverer. You have to remember that up to this point, in Exodus, up to this point, the people of God had been subjected for over 400 years under the might of the Egyptian empire. No one in those days would have thought much about the name Yahweh, about the God of Israel. Everyone would have assumed that the gods of Egypt were stronger, that they were more sovereign. It was assumed that the God of Israel must have either abandoned his people or he's just too weak to do anything about it. Up to this point, God's name meant very little. And so he was concerned for the glory of his name. So listen to what the Lord says. Look back in verse 4. Listen to what he says. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them, and I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts. And the Egyptians shall know that I am Yahweh, I am the Lord. Or he says something similar in verses 17 to 18. Look there in verse 17. And I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they shall go in after them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts, his chariots and his horsemen. And the Egyptians shall know that I am Yahweh. I am the Lord when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots and his horsemen. I feel like the Lord is toying with Pharaoh. He, he led the Israelites into a, a vulnerable position hemmed in by the sea, knowing exactly what it was going to look like to Pharaoh, knowing that Pharaoh would think that he has the Israelites right where he wants them, and he's going to pursue them with reckless abandon. And let's not ignore the fact that it does say three times in our text that God hardened the heart of Pharaoh, and he, and he, or, or he hardened the hearts of the Egyptians as a whole. So there is a clear emphasis here in our chapter that God 
is in the driver's seat. He's the one taking initiative. He's sovereignly ordaining these events and even the reactions of his enemies. God hardened their hearts. But of course, you have to read that in context of the whole book of Exodus because there's other places in Exodus where it stresses that Pharaoh is responsible for hardening his own heart. So friends, there is no suggestion that Pharaoh here is operating against his own will. No, he is doing exactly what he wants. All of Pharaoh's decisions are free decisions, but all of his free decisions were ultimately pieces within God's overall sovereign plan. Like a master chess player, God essentially is forcing his, comp- his opponents to move themselves into checkmate. From the start of the game, God knew every move. God knew how he was going to get glory over his enemies. And so he ordained and he orchestrated every single move so that Pharaoh and the Egyptians would freely move themselves into checkmate. Proverbs 21 verse 1 says, The king's heart is a stream of water in the hands of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wills. And that's how God saves. He exalts his sovereign grace by setting apart an undeserving people, saving them, delivering them by showing mercy, and at the same time, he sets apart another undeserving people, judging them by giving them what they deserve. Justice. They deserve God's justice. The Israelites and the Egyptians, you have to remember, are sinners alike. They all deserve God's justice. They all deserve to drown in that sea. It's only by God's sovereign grace, only because of his divine initiative, only because of his covenant faithfulness to his promises to save, did the Israelites experience deliverance on that day. And let's not forget, church, that same truth applies to us. We all deserve justice. We all deserve to be drowned in the sea of God's holy wrath. And the reason we're not is not because of our faith. It's not because of our faithfulness. It's because of God's covenant faithfulness. It's only until he graciously saves us, opens up our eyes to see his deliverance accomplished, that we learn to fear and to trust him. Now, of course, that begs the question, Begs the question of what act of of great deliverance has the Lord accomplished for us that he eventually opens up our eyes to see? Because obviously he didn't lead any of us through the Red Sea. I've never even been to that part of the world. So what event are we referring to? Identifying this accomplished deliverance leads us to our fourth and final observation. Divine deliverance anticipates by pointing you to a greater exodus to come. This is where I get worried when Christians try to apply Exodus 14 into their lives by speaking about their own exodus experience. When I said crossing the Red Sea is a paradigm of biblical salvation, I don't mean that you should now apply this as a paradigm for how you ought to handle your personal hardships and troubles in life. I don't think it helps to think in terms of your own exodus experience or to try to identify your personal Red Seas out there. It's dangerous to apply our passage 
in such a way as to give you hope that if you just believe hard enough, you're going to get through whatever difficulty you're facing. Because we honestly have no idea if God is going to part those waters for you. It's well within his right to let all of those troubles, to let those waters overwhelm you. It wouldn't be the first time he let, he let waters overtake someone that he loves. So it would be actually cruel and untrue to tell a Christian that no matter what obstacle you face, that God is going to part those waters if you just believe hard enough. That's not true. And that's why it's not helpful to speak about your own Exodus experience. Crossing the Red Sea is a paradigm of salvation in the sense that this pivotal event in the Old Testament ultimately sets the stage for a greater Exodus found in the pages of the New Testament. In Luke chapter 9, Jesus is on the Mount of Transfiguration. And it says in Luke 9, verse 30, that two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now, in the footnotes of my ESV Bible, it says that the Greek for the word departure is literally exodus. He was talking to Moses and Elijah about his exodus that he was about to accomplish in Jerusalem. That means that Jesus is the only one who ought to be talking about his own exodus experience because the exodus in today's passage was ultimately setting the stage for his greater exodus that he was to accomplish at Jerusalem. Just like the way of the wilderness, the path to Calvary seemed like a strategically bad move. And just like Pharaoh with his hardened heart, Satan probably thought that he had caught God in a strategic error. And he was going to pursue now with reckless abandon. But the cross was no error. This was no mistake. It's the way that God saves. He led his son down a difficult path to a point of dismay. He led him right up to the waters of judgment. And there, Jesus humbled himself. And he passed through the walls of death. But he came out on the other side victorious in resurrection life. And the whole point is that the exodus at the Red Sea is pointing to the exodus at Calvary where deliverance was accomplished for us on an infinitely greater scale. And you and I, we share in this deliverance not by imitation, not by going through our own exodus experience. No, we share in this by identification, by identifying ourselves with Christ Jesus and his exodus experience. And that's why when Christians face hardship, we should not be thinking to ourselves, oh, I guess I'm going through an exodus right now. I guess this must be my Red Sea moment. No, if you are a Christian, you've already had your Red Sea moment. You've already had your exodus experience. You've experienced it in Christ, on his cross, in his tomb, through his resurrection all by faith, by your union with Christ. You are included in those saving events. And so that now means that, Christian, you are now living on the east bank 
of the Red Sea. You are on the side of salvation. You are living in a new era, a new life. I don't know what the outcome of your present hardship will be. I don't know if God is going to part those troubled waters in front of you. But if you are in Christ, then I know that you are already on the safe and secure side of the sea. And all that remains for you is to do what the Israelites did when they reached the other bank. They feared the Lord and they believed. They learned to trust him as he continued to lead them through the wilderness, the wilderness that we call life. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this familiar story. Lord, we need to see it with fresh eyes. Thank you, O oh Lord, for how we see Jesus and what he has done for us. It's truly the application and the fulfillment of this passage. Help us to live by faith, to live in identification with Christ Jesus our Lord. It's in his name we pray. Amen.